let me add my welcome to, uh, to Grant. My name's Mark. At this point, uh, the City Kids can go out to their program. And the rest of us can turn uh, to 1 Kings, if you can find it in your pew Bible. Uh, it's page 291. That's ready to go when I need it, Chris, yeah? Great. Um, our normal practice, if you're new with us or if you're visiting, is to, is to, pre- is to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, and next week, we'll be starting a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which is a wisdom book. And this week, by way of uh, a one-off or an introduction to the book, we'll be looking for this time at the author, at Solomon. Shlomo, King Solomon, and uh, there are lots of chapters. It's going to be a bit like a biopic uh, today, looking at him. I'm going to read from 1 Kings 10, then we're going to watch uh, a short music video um, because I think it helps us, not because I just want to be cool and try and ingratiate myself to you. Um, I think it picks up some of the themes that we're going to be talking about. But let's read. Uh, from uh, 1 Kings 10, verse 23, down to 4.11. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his uh, brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And he made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses from, was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received from Kew, uh, from, no, let's try again. And the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot would be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, among, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so reads God's word. 
People heard that song on the radio? No? Familiar to some, new to others? It's being played on FM 104 all the time. They keep saying that they don't repeat their hits. It's a lie. Uh, don't listen to them. Uh, but they, they're playing this a lot. And the more they've been playing, the more I've been listening to it, especially with kind of preparing this sermon. Because actually, uh, I, think it's, I think it's quite a, quite a cool song in the sense that it... Um, it really does kind of drill down into several big, actually biblical themes. Uh, one being the fleetingness of life. It's a four-minute song. By the end of it, he's 60. You know, soon I will be 60 years old. You know, there's a, there's a transience to it all, that it's all, you know, our life is just going along at a clip. That's a biblical idea. It's an, an idea that's going to come out in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think another idea that Seven Years picks up on, and uh, some of you I know will be kind of good at picking up lyrics, and some of you are like, uh, that's coming at me too quickly, um, is that it's kind of a search for significance, a search for meaning. There's different things being offered uh, as, uh, as possible you know, sources of meaning or of value. So there's the question of you know, fame or power, and he's saying, he basically says no. Uh, listen to these words. He says, there's something about that glory that always just seemed to bore me because I know that, though, uh, that it's only those I love who will ever really know me, that there's, there's, a, there's a fakeness to, to fame and to... Or to power. So that's not a place for meaning or significance. There's the question of, well, will it be money? It talks of, uh, right in the first verse about how we were never rich, so we were all out to make that steady figure. It's an initial motivator, but does it actually ultimately sustain? That's not where, where, uh, where Lucas Graham finishes his song. He doesn't finish with, with acquisition. He doesn't finish with stuff. He finishes with the question of family. Will it be family? I think this comes closest to where Lucas Graham finds meaning and significance because a lot, a lot of the most positive stuff is said about his friends, his bros, or about his children. But even there, there's a question mark that hangs over that final verse where he says twice, I hope my children will come and visit once or twice a month, or soon I'll be 60 years old. Will I think the world is cold, or will I have a lot of children who can warm me? Will they provide the, the meaning, the safety, the security, the comfort, the significance, the value that I'm looking for? Will I think the world is cold, or will I have a lot of children who can warm me? Seven years, though you might find it be an irritating song, um, actually ask some really fundamental questions that the Bible asks. Questions about what is truly meaningful, what is truly significant, what is truly valuable. I think those are not just questions that Lucas Graham is asking, not just questions that, uh, that the Bible is asking, but questions that actually we ask, whether consciously or not. They all weigh heavy on us. A lot of us have matured into adulthood on the other side of the Celtic tiger. So money is not a big contender for where we find value because we know that it's all quite fleeting, that actually it was a lot of greed that caused where we're at, 
So when we're looking for meaning and significance, it's probably not where we're going to look. Sure, we all want to, uh, want to, uh, to do well. We all want to work hard. But it's hard in this country, in this city. It does feel like the odds are stacked against us. I mean, when do you hope to own a house, for example? It's hard to find work. So will it be money that you look for? Maybe, maybe not. But that doesn't stop us searching for meaning. I think ultimately, and maybe this is just me, we want our lives to matter for something. We would like you know, to live our 70 or 80 years, however long it is, but to know that to know that it actually counted, that we made a, a difference, at least to a small group of people. It's like the, the story, it might be apocryphal, it might not be. The story goes along the lines that Steve Jobs uh, goes to uh, an executive at Coca-Cola and says to him, why are you wasting your life selling sugar water? when you can come and help me make a difference in the universe. There's something, whether that's true or not, again, there's something quite compelling about that, that we don't want our lives to be spent selling sugar water. We would much rather make a difference in the universe. Or is that just me? We don't want to be sugar water people. And so when we're passionate about things, we're not passionate about it simply for, for our own ends, really. Those of us who are passionate about science, about engineering, about the arts, about healthcare, about software engineering, about finance, about working in the service industry, we do it not primarily because it will make us rich, but because we want to do something that matters in the world, even if it's just for a small group of people. And this longing is something that God has laid upon each of us. And it's something that only ultimately He answers. That's why we're doing the book of Ecclesiastes next week. We don't just, you know, look through the index and go, we should start there. Ecclesiastes, okay, that'll do. We kind of think, well, here's some of the things that we're all wrestling with. And the book of Ecclesiastes is all about wisdom where to find meaning. And if we want to be significant, where, where are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? That's why we're starting this series. Ecclesiastes gives an honest look at the things that the people around us tend to value. It's an honest look at money. It's an honest look at sex. It's an honest look at power. It's not saying that those things are all necessarily bad. It's just an honest look at them. But today, we will look a little bit at its author, at Solomon, the king. We'll look at his life, we'll look at his successes, we'll look at his failings. You saw them read, some of his failings towards the end of his life. And hopefully through him, begin to see the God who's the source of the wisdom that we need in order to live lives that are truly significant. So, who was Solomon? Uh, this is where most of the sermon is going to be. It's kind of split up into four acts, his life. Um, you, can, uh, you can flick with me if you like, or you can listen along. Uh, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, and we're just going to 
get a bit of a, a feel for who Solomon was. First of all, who's his daddy? His daddy's David, David of Goliath fame, shepherd boy, uh, great king in Israel, in Jerusalem, probably the, uh, the best king or the, the high point of the, the Jewish kingship. Solomon reigned about 950 years before Jesus, so it's about a millennia before, uh, before Christ. And he comes to the throne in 1 Kings chapter 2 after the death of his dad. And he spends the, uh, you can read chapter 2 in your own time, he spends all of chapter 2, uh, kind of like, like Game of Thrones or something, like he basically has a hitman that he sends out to go and whack all the other guys. Um, and it, it's it's, uh, it's under, the, t- under the, uh, the rather understated title of Solomon establishes, re- establishes his reign. Yeah, he does that by killing everyone else. Uh, anyway, he comes to the throne. We can talk about you know, the ethics of that. He comes to the throne, and in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, we hear about, about his inner life, about who he, who he was as a person. So 1, King, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. He loved Yahweh walking in, his, in the statutes of David, his father. And so, verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and upright, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you and you have kept from him this great for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day and now o lord my god you have made your servant king in place of david my father although i am but a little child i do not know how to go out or how to come in and your servant in the midst of your people is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Solomon asks, not for riches, not for power, but for wisdom. He asks for wisdom. Who, if God came to you in the night, is that what you would ask for? He asked for wisdom because he, he has a bit of self-awareness about him. You know, when he says, I, I am a little child, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean literally it didn't come to him when he was like four years old. He means that in terms of my understanding, in terms of how to do this thing of, you know, of kinging, of governing, I feel, I feel pretty inadequate. He feels the weight of the task ahead of him. So he says, I don't know how to go out or to come in. Doesn't, it's a recognition of his limitations. And so he asks God, asks God for wisdom. God's not a genie. He's unlikely to do this for you this evening. But we learn some important things here. Look first at Solomon's attitude. It's very honest. God knows the inner workings of our hearts anyway. Why try and hide it from him? Solomon comes plainly and said, 
I feel kind of overwhelmed by this. I, I need your help. It's very real. And God grants his requests and promises to bless him with riches also. And so by the end of chapter 4, his wisdom has increased. You have that, uh, that little scenario or that little story, the insight into his wisdom that some of you will remember where, uh, where two women are squabbling over a, over a baby and who the mother is, and he's able to adjudicate who the true mother is. So you can read that story in 1 Kings chapter 4, and it talks about how they all marveled at his wisdom. And then it, chapter 4 concludes by saying that he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. How many have you done? Yeah, I'll keep reading. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish and of people and nations. And they came to hear of the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth, all who heard of his wisdom. Not only was he a poet and an artist, he was a scientist. He was quite keen on taxonomy. He liked to categorize. Uh, you know, not very many of us here get our engine revved by taxonomy. Some of you might. But Solomon uh, enjoyed beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He was uh, he was a jack of all trades and a master of them all. That is the end of Act 1. Act 2 sees Solomon's building of the temple. This is in 1 Kings chapter 5. And he begins this seven year endeavor to build the temple. Because God. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of God's presence, it had been traveling around in a tent. And because the people had now settled in the land, he wanted to build a great temple. And so he begins this seven-year endeavor in chapter 5. And just some of the, just some of the things, it says, verse 15, Solomon had 70,000 burden bearers. That's 70,000 workmen and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. And it said that it was all done without the sound of one hammer on the temple mount. It was all done in silence. All of the stones were cut somewhere else, and they were all brought to Jerusalem. It's quite a remarkable feat of engineering. No expenses spared. You can read about this grand three-story, you think Bronze Age, three-story buildings, that's going to be hard. He builds this three-story temple. It's, the floor is overlaid with gold. It is opulent in the extreme. And finally, the temple is is completed, and Solomon dedicates the temple. And he dedicates the temple with this, with this extensive prayer, this extensive prayer reflecting on the character of God. You see, this guy, he's not just an artist. He's not just a scientist. He's also a theologian. He gets God. He understands what God is like. And his prayer is a reflection on God's character. And he prays this prayer in 1 Kings chapter uh, 8. Just a couple of things from it. Verse 23 of 1 Kings 8. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above 
or an earth beneath, keeping covenant, keeping promise, and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. This is what you're like, God. And he goes on in verse 27. Note again the awareness here. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built. He looks at the temple and all of its grandeur and he says, I can't continue inside this house. You're so much bigger than that. At this point, Solomon is wiser than many Irish clergy who speak in terms of coming into God's house. It's nonsense. Heaven nor the highest heaven cannot contain you. He is the transcendent one, the transcendent creator. So here we see Solomon putting his wisdom to work, putting his wisdom and allowing it to put his life into perspective. He knows that a house can't contain God. He knows that he's still ultimately just a servant. We tend to get this the wrong way around. You see, what Solomon is doing is he's taking God very seriously, and he's not taking himself too seriously. We flip that. We take ourselves far too seriously, and we treat God far too lightly. We think that we can contain him, that we can box him in that we can reduce him down. Or Solomon teaches us that no, it's the, it's the other way around. We do not look at God through a microscope, like he is some small thing to be examined. We look at God through a telescope. He is a nebula to be marveled at. Solomon has his perspective right. That's wisdom. That's supernatural wisdom. We don't naturally think along those lines. And the rest of the prayer is a humble recognition. It's a humble recognition that human beings aren't perfect. All of it goes through. If, when your people do this, when, when we sin, when we, when we mess up, when we are broken, when we do wrong, would you be merciful to us? It's very humble. And he's casting himself and the whole people of God on the mercy and on the grace of God. And so he'd say in verse 36 of uh, 1 Kings 8, he, said, he says, Hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon their land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Or in verse 39, here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act to render and render to each whose heart you know according to his ways. Hear us when we cry to you. Forgive us when we need to be forgiven. Act towards us in mercy and in grace. This is wisdom. This is the wisdom that we need that sees us as who we are. Yes, we are glorious. As, the, as Psalm 8 would say, we are made a little lower than the angels. But made we are. We are creatures. 
and he is the creator. We are not ultimately the center. Everything does not exist for us, ultimately, to make us comfortable. If you live like you're at the center, or that your God is too small, that he just exists to make you comfortable or to meet your needs. Why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing because you will find no rest. You will find no rest when you're at the center of everything because you'll be constantly warding off other competitors for the center. You'll be constantly guarding it. Solomon's prayer is full of this theme of giving us rest. And it would say in 1 Kings chapter 9 that, uh, that Solomon had rest on all sides from his enemies because he had this right perspective. If you're standing on your, on your, on your own rights, on your own abilities, that's a very precarious and threatening position. All that needs to happen is somebody to come along who's better at, at what you value than you are or for somebody to come along and take away what you value. There's no rest in putting yourself at the center. Do you see how acknowledging that we're creatures and that He's the Creator is not just the right way to go about things, but it's actually a good way? Because it gives us rest. We can rest in who we are. No longer trying to, to clamor and to possess, and to stand on these things that as seven years has shown us, and as the Bible shows us, as Solomon shows us, they're fleeting anyway. The prophet Isaiah would say, all flesh is grass. And so it is. So it is. Here is the richest, most comfortable, wisest man in all the world. And what does he say? He says, I know what gives me rest, and it's not any of those things. It's knowing who God is, and it's knowing who I am in the light of that. So John Calvin, who lived about 500 years ago in Geneva, the great reformer, he, he would start his, his great theological work, a thing called the, Christ, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He starts that work with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. He says, before you, if you want to know what you're like, you need to get to know God. You need to get to know the God who made you before you can know what you're like. That's where we begin. That's where Solomon begins. That's where wisdom comes from. Act 3, Solomon's wealth and fame, it spreads abroad, and so the queen of Sheba comes along. Remember that, that classical piece of music? We should play it now. Um, the entrance of the queen of Sheba by Handel, that great majestic piece of music where she comes in regaled in her splendor, coming to see the wisdom and the riches of Solomon. She bows down before him and says, I had heard of your wisdom and of your riches. And she says that, uh, look at it with me in 1 Kings 10, uh, verse 6 to 10. 
And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I have heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. They had curry for years. Some of you are like, oh no, I'm really glad that I wasn't living in Israel then. Be adding yogurt and cheese and stuff to kind of mild it down. Spices. Again, opulent. His fame spreads. This is the just, but as an aside, this is in part how, how evangelism ought to work, that people should see and should hear something that is so wondrous, so compelling about us, that, that they cannot help but be drawn to it and come and look and say, I didn't know the half of it. I didn't know the half of it how loving your community is, how generous you are towards one another, how honest, how real, not how rich, that this pagan queen should come from the lowest reaches of the world in those days, from Ethiopia, and come and marvel. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be a wonderful and wondrous thing if the Lord made us a community that was so beautiful, so compelling, that people began to hear of it, and they wanted to come and see, is it really true? Are they really like that? It's not to say that we need to become perfect, but we do need to become wise And so we conclude in chapter 10 this remarkable sentence that silver had become as common as stone in verse 27. Wouldn't that be nice? Silver has become as common as stone. And so act four, Oren's leaving for the bad news before the bad news happens. He only wanted the good stuff. Act four is in 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. Do you, know the, do you know the old saying, the best of men are men at best? That's Solomon. The best of men are men at best. Because Solomon, towards the end of his days, things changed, and his life ends tragically. Something had become more valuable for him. Something had turned his heart. whether it was sex or pleasure 
or simply intimacy, though how you are intimate with a thousand women. Something turned his heart. And what we see here is that there is a connection between how we live and what we worship, what we value. Because it wasn't just that he loved a thousand women, it's that he, they turned his heart to worship other gods. So he was not wholly devoted to Yahweh, his God, the Lord. But rather that he would say in verse 7, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. It's not just abominations because the Bible writer just, you know, isn't very ecumenical. You know, the Bible writer wasn't living in a pluralist society. They're an abomination because those, those gods, those particular gods, Chemosh and Molech, they favored child sacrifice, amongst other things. It's really tragically sad they turned his heart away. And so it is with us. We don't bow down to Asherah or Baal or Chemosh or Molech. But what we prioritize, what we value, what we habitually do tells us something about where our heart is, tells us something about what we truly worship. It warrants sober reflection, actually. And so adversaries are raised up against Solomon. There's a prophecy that his kingdom will be ripped from him, and so it is. It is ripped from his son after he dies, and ten tribes, there's twelve tribes in Israel, ten tribes are cut off and form a different kingdom after his death. And simply, when, when his life is ended, the writer simply just records it very matter-of-factly in verse 43 of chapter 11. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. It really is fleeting, you know. All of the riches, all of the opulence, and Solomon died. And so we move on. The best of men are men at best. What can we learn from Solomon? Particularly as we begin this, this series in Ecclesiastes next week. Well, I guess for each of us, young as we are, there is a warning to endure. Solomon begins his life honestly coming to God, bearing a soul. I am a, I'm a young child. Give me wisdom. He dies an apostate, worshiping Chemosh. Is there anything more tragic than that? There is a warning here in the text to, to keep on, to keep on valuing God above all else, to keep on trusting in Him and in His steadfast love and in His promises, to keep on pursuing Him as your, as your place of highest significance. There's a warning to endure. We do not do it all in our own might. God holds us in his hands. And yet, even the New Testament would compel us to, to keep on working out our salvation with fear.
fear and trembling, as Paul would say in Philippians, or to keep ourselves in the love of God, as John would say in his first letter. There's a warning to endure. Second thing that we can learn as we conclude is that Solomon had everything. He had more money than Bill Gates. He had more power than Obama. He had more women than Hugh Hefner. Glad to know you're all awake. Where does he find meaning and significance? It's not ultimately in having more. Not ultimately in having more of these things. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes. The message of Ecclesiastes is don't be fooled. Don't be fooled with the illusion that if I just had more, then I'd be happy. If I, had, if I just had the, the better salary, if I had the better position, if I, if I had more friends, if I had more, a more fulfilling relationship, if I had more, then I'll be. The message of Ecclesiastes is don't be fooled. That is an illusion. And Solomon is proof of it. His heart was turned. It didn't ultimately satisfy. Rather, it is an encouragement to live life under the wise rule of God because it is there that we find that all of life is imbued with meaning. You think, of the, you think of the atheist, the consistent atheist. Where do they find meaning? What is the basis for their meaning, for their value? The writer, to the, to, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, would say that meaning is ultimately only found when we live life under the good and gracious rule of God. And finally, the thing that we can learn is that there's only one perfect man in the Bible. There's only one perfect king. The Bible is not, is not a, a list of hero stories. Solomon, Solomon neither wears a white hat nor a black hat. His hat is gray. and The Bible is comfortable with the gray there are good things about Solomon, some things to be praised. There are things that are not good. And in fact, that if you go through it all, before we get to the, he loved a thousand women and they turned his heart away, it's kind of peppered all the way through. So Keegan read from Deuteronomy 17, where it talked about how the king of Israel, he was not, he was not supposed to, to gather lots of horses and chariots. He was certainly not supposed to go to Egypt to get them. And yet, there are just little notes, little phrases that that's what Solomon did. When he has, a, you know, over a thousand chariots, or over a thousand horses, rather, and 600 chariots. When he's going to Egypt and paying a high price for them. Or where it talks about them building the temple. Remember I said about 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters. Just a couple of verses up, it talks about how he had, uh, how he had made people slaves. There's just little hints from the writer that this guy exists in the gray and that is all to point us forward that he is not the king that we are to look to. 
Sure, he goes down in history as one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had, but he is not ultimately the king that we need. We need great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who would come in this line and who would be the embodiment of wisdom and who would never turn aside to the right or to the left and who would love the Lord his God for, with his whole heart all the days of his life, even when that means death. And that he would rise to give us rest. That is the king that ultimately we are to look to this morning and through the book of Ecclesiastes. The Bible isn't naive about life. It's not naive about people. It celebrates Solomon, but it never presents him as perfect. There is only one perfect king, one perfect savior, and that is the Lord Jesus. And it is under his good rule that our fleeting life soon will be 60 years old. It's under his good rule that our life finds meaning, that our life finds value, and that it finds significance. Let's pray. A moment of silent reflection as we think about some of these things. Perhaps the Lord has laid something particular on your heart uh, that you would like to, to bring to him, to ask his help for, to pray about. So we do that now in the silence. Father, we so desperately want this short life to matter for something. Would you help us to see that you are the true source of meaning and value? That life under your good rule is significant. Would you help us to to not swerve to the right or to the left, but to endure? Would we rejoice in the good things of Solomon, but would we learn from these warnings, these lessons? And we, would we look to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us rest on every side? For we ask it in his name. Amen.